Hi everyone, welcome to The Green Room, where we speak to entrepreneurs and thought leaders in fintech across Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Amrita Veer. We are sponsored by the ASEAN Financial Innovation Network, or AFIN, Oxygen by Apex, and open banking fintech, Broncos. In this episode, we speak with Payal Patel, Managing Director of FinTrail Asia, about her series of career shifts, ultimately leading her to fintech compliance in Asia. Pyle shares her experience starting her own financial crime consulting firm in Singapore and synergies that led her to join Fintrail. We also discuss the risks posed by innovative financial solutions, the importance of having a robust compliance function, and why working with regulators is critical to fintech success in Southeast Asia. Fintrail is a global compliance consultancy that helps financial service companies fight financial crime. You can learn more about them by visiting fintrail.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello everyone, my name is Manish Devan. I am the Managing Director for AFIN, which is ASEAN Financial Innovation Network. We run the very popular apexplatform.com, which is a collaboration platform to help financial institutions work together with a very vibrant ecosystem of fintechs from across the world. We now operate what we call as Oxygen by Apex, which is essentially a knowledge sharing platform. And we are very happy to collaborate with the Green Room. It's a great combination of what we do as a platform service provider and what the Green Room brings to you as a a knowledge sharing base. You can find out more about Apex on apexplatform.com and you can find out more about Oxygen by logging into apexoxygen.com where you'll find a lot of great panels, keynotes, uh, masterclasses that we do from time to time and uh, look forward to seeing you there. I'm super excited to introduce our guest, Payal Patel. She is um, founder of P-Squared Financial Crime Consultancy and is now the MD for APAC at FinTrail. Um, Pyle, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I am super excited to be talking to you and sort of, I guess, reliving my my career journey. Sometimes it's quite nice, especially during these weird times to sort of take stock of everything that's happened and, you know, where we are and what what the future hopefully looks like. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, to me, it seems like you've made a series of really intentional shifts. And so I'm curious if you could like talk us through those and, and like your thought process. Maybe we can start um, back back in the UK. Yeah, I mean, both my husband and I met at university. We'd, we'd lived um, in London our whole lives. We'd traveled a lot, but we hadn't spent a significant, we hadn't relocated. Um, and one day I just sort of said, you know what would be interesting? It'd be fun if we just, moved um and so my husband sort of you know it's, it's not uncommon for me to come up with these radical ideas every now and again um and so i think he he didn't think too much of it but but i think he he sort of said well you know look let's just make a really loose plan which is we'll give ourselves the year to make the shift and whoever gets the job first um you know the other both of us will go and that was the commitment and i don't think he really thought I don't think either of us actually thought this would actually happen. Um, and at the time I sort of had some discussions with Citibank and there was an opportunity out in the US. Um, but I, I think 
both of us were really interested in Asia, mainly um, because the region is so um, so attractive from a traveling perspective. Also, the opportunity to immerse ourselves in a new culture, a new environment uh, was really appealing. Um, and so, yeah, I just started putting a lot of feelers out um, in, in Hong Kong mainly. Um, and I think we made the plan in sort of January to give ourselves the year and in November, so literally at the 11th hour, I am, um, I got the call from JP Morgan that there was an opportunity and that they wanted to make me an offer. And we literally gave ourselves a few months, packed our suitcases and, and moved out. Um, and we've been in Asia now for nine years. Um, it's been incredible. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it was one of those, let's just take the opportunity to see what happens. Um, I'm not sure if, if this is also the case for you, but I think a lot of people come out with sort of a two year plan, which is kind of what we did. Um, but you know, there's so much to do and we've loved so much about it. And now, you know, two years just in hindsight just wasn't enough for us. And we've just, you know, now we've got children here and my parents now live here. So it definitely feels like we've we've established roots here in Asia for sure. Got it. Yeah, I know that I think there are a lot of parallels I see. Um, but that's great. It's glad Singapore is lucky to have you out here. Um, so we've talked about the shift from legal to compliance. We've talked about the shift from UK to uh, to Asia. I think the last big shift that I see is um, when you, you went from banking to actually to banking compliance, actually to fintech compliance and doing uh, much more, uh, a deeper focus on tech, especially in Asia. Mm. So can you tell us about that, that shift as well? Yeah. So I am, um, when I was at Standard Chartered, I headed up their correspondent banking program across Asia and the Middle East. So that meant that I went out and I met with um, Standard Chartered's clients, um, which included um, fintechs, but primarily um, banks and NBFIs. Um, and it really, gave, it really gave me a sense of sort of, you know, um, different styles of, um, of institutions, different products and services. And I really felt like the fintech space was uh, uh, an area where for me was very new and exciting, an area that I hadn't worked in before, and an area where I felt like there, there's really a material learning trajectory for me, not only in terms of um, working style and culture, but also in terms of the ways um, in which you apply and think about compliance. Um, and so I started thinking about, you know, where would I want to move? Um, and I was on maternity leave and I sort of thought, well, rather than make the jump into a tech company, what I'd much rather do is take a bit of time and maybe build up my skill set, knowledge and practical experience in the space. So I set up my own consultancy um, to get as much exposure across the fintech ecosystem as possible. And at the time, my focus was very much on working with fintechs that wanted to establish banking partnerships. So really trying to double down on the currency that I brought, which was sort of all my banking and regulatory experience, but really sort of working and learning from sort of how the fintechs operate, what their products and services are, what that means from a regulatory perspective and translating that dialogue back um, in order to secure those banking partnerships and or regulatory licenses. Got it. Yeah. Thank you for talking us through that. And P squared um, has subsequently been absorbed by Fintrail. Um, That's right. Tell us a little about, about what Fintrail does. 
Yeah, so um, it's really serendipitous how I um, I sort of met with the founders of, of FinTrail. So I'd set up my consultancy um, and um, I was really looking to sort of build a community of compliance officers that worked um, in tech fintech so you very much have this in the in in banks you have these organizations and networks that meet and they share ex experience and, and learnings i didn't really feel like you had that in the tech space at least not in um not in uh, singapore so um i was sort of doing some googling and i came across the fintech fin crime exchange which is um a network that is managed by fintra which brings together the the compliance uh, world and you know the sharing of knowledge um, through uh, periodic meetups etc so I reached out to one of the co-founders and said look I think this is great I would love to to head up your Asia chapter you know and collaborate and work together and it was very clear from the outset that we were very aligned in terms of our approach and philosophy around compliance and financial crime uh, Fintrell also focuses on fintech, which is something that I was very interested um, in terms of focusing on. So very quickly, it became clear that there were obvious synergies there and that um, a collaboration would be something that would work really well for both of us. So, um, yeah, I joined the team at Fintrell. I now head up their business here in Asia. Um, we work with financial institutions um, across a range of products and services from startup to scale up um, and across the region on all aspects of uh, their compliance program. That's amazing, Kyle. I think being able to start something, but then also seeing like the areas of synergy and to be able to put those, put all of those like good pieces together and work together to create something even better is, is really amazing. So um, kudos yeah. to you. For Thank you. I mean, it is, it is, yeah, I mean, it is, it, it is a decision that, you know, I didn't, I didn't take lightly. I mean, I think when you start your own business, it's your baby and you have ultimate control and ownership over every aspect of it and that's great in some ways and in other ways it has real challenges um i really think when you find a partner um that really at, at its core aligns with sort of what your vision is and what your ultimate sort of aspirations are how you like to work and you know for me the team at fintrow um is is what i love like the expertise that they bring but also um we are like a, a little family and i i really enjoy sort of you know working in teams where there's real sort of um you know, there's really strong relationships and sharing of expertise across the organization, which means that, you know, the way in which we operate is very much as a global team with a regional presence. So I still feel empowered to run the business here in the region as I would have um, had I still sort of operated P-squared, but ultimately I leverage this depth of expertise that, that we have across the, across the globe. Um, from having worked with clients from across the globe. And that for me is invaluable and, and something that I, I feel I wouldn't have been able to do in isolation um, for, for quite some time. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, now I actually do wanna dig into the financial crime work that you do. Um, maybe before we get into the work, can you just tell us like, what is financial crime? It's not, I, I know some people may just think it's like phishing emails or online scams, but Really, what is financial crime and why is compliance so important in fighting it? Yeah, so financial crime can take many forms. I think typically at its highest level, we talk about money laundering, which is essentially the processing of illegitimate funds and, you know, um, using that, those illegitimate gains for um 
for criminal um, activity and, and, you know, sort of processing those funds and then terrorist financing. Um, and I guess the main reason sort of it's, it's an area that I love working in. I often get asked this question sort of, you know, why, why compliance? I, I think it has a bit of a bad rep for being, uh, for being boring, uh, although I don't find it particularly boring is, you know, I think people often forget the social impact of money laundering and terrorist financing. I mean, ultimately it costs us all. So serious crime from drugs and cybercrime to people trafficking um, has huge negative impacts on society and the people affected. Um, as well as costing the economy billions each year. And ultimately the trickle down effect of that is that taxes need to be raised to compensate not only for the financial loss, but also the additional resource required to police the activity going forward. The price of consumer services increases as, bus as businesses seek to cover the costs associated with um, the higher taxes. Incidents of corruption, violent crimes and job losses go up and all of this can ultimately destabilize companies, industries and even developing um, nations so also for the victims of um crimes enabled by laundered money the effects can be devastating and lifelong including great personal family loss and so i see my role as preventing the criminal activity at a crucial point where criminals seek to convert the clean and clean their money by concealing it within the financial system especially essentially allowing the crime to pay off Got it. Yeah, thank you. I, I think it's it's really hard just to look at it on paper and be like, financial crime, what does that mean? Um, it's really helpful to give those kind of real world implications. One other thing, while I, while I think about it, I think, you know, something that at Fintro we really try and focus on, and particularly I think it's important in, in this region, is this idea of moving away from simply seeing financial crime and compliance as a tick box exercise. The regulator needs us to do it, so we'll do it. You know, it's really thinking more broadly about the socioeconomic implications of, of why we're doing this and thinking beyond simply just regulatory requirements, really trying to interpret well, what's the essence of the risk that these regulations are trying to address and how do we apply them to our business model? Um, and so I definitely see that thought process and that application of a risk-based approach manifest itself um, in, in Europe and the US. I see more in Asia where the where the FinTech ecosystem is, is, um, is a bit greener and still evolving, that we haven't quite got there yet but we're getting there and it's very much sort of that type of message that I try um, to push and it's very much um, a pillar of sort of um, how what what health trial tries to approach compliance and financial crime. Yeah um, actually Paul, I kind of want to dig into that a little bit more uh, you know you mentioned there are differences in the way we think about financial crime and compliance in maybe western economies versus Asia can you maybe describe those a little bit more? And even within Asia, you know, where do you see some of the biggest differences? So I think one of the key challenges in this region, um, but equally what makes it super exciting um, of the, you know, to, to, to be working here is the fragmentate the fragmented nature of the region. So depending on how many countries you decide to bucket within the APAC region, you're talking about 15 different markets, different regulatory requirements, language barriers, etc. Essentially, each, each market, each new market should be treated as a new business in and of itself. Um, what works in one market might not in another, the regulatory requirements within those markets are different. Um, really trying to have some of those nuanced discussions with regulators around interpreting regulations and applying them to unique and bespoke business models within those markets also requires, you know, a specific and unique skill set 
that might only exist within that market. So when I hear of companies sort of um, basing themselves in Singapore and talking about scaling across the region, I think a lot of them really underestimate the, the challenges associated with that. And from a compliance perspective, um, what we often see um, happen is that you have sort of compliance expertise that is that is housed and HQ'd in say Singapore or Hong Kong. But then what you what you definitely need is that in-country expertise that can drive some of those more um, bespoke country specific dialogue um, around sort of, you know, what are the unique typologies that we're seeing in this market? Um, what are the new emerging um, regulatory requirements that apply to our business? And really having a seamless way in which communication can happen uh, so that the business can remain agile um, and can continue to adapt um, to and be responsive to those localized requirements. I see it being quite different in Europe where you benefit from passporting. So essentially you can set yourself up in one market and then, you know, benefit from exploring the, 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 re, the, um, the region effectively. Yeah, yeah, I know that makes a lot of sense. Some markets, I would say like Singapore are very developed in how they think about, you know, um, financial crime. But many of the other countries in the region may be less, maybe, uh, you know, the regulators are less savvy about it. How do you yes. manage, I, I don't know if it's the relationship with the regulators or the companies that you work with to make sure that financial criminals aren't getting their way, even if the regulatory regime doesn't, uh, doesn't necessarily help to mitigate it? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I would say um, for me, the key is about open honest and transparent dialogue and in that regard I feel like those that work in the fintech space have a real obligation in terms of hand-holding regulators to really ensure that they understand um, the the products and services that are being created um, and so they have a really uh, robust understanding of um, what are the risks associated with their specific business model and that they're able to talk to that in detail. So it's important to remember that regulators aren't just concerned with your um, your your uh, business in isolation. They're also concerned with well, what's, what's the risk exposure here to the ecosystem as a whole. Um, and I think really thinking about, okay, well, what risk do we have? Um, how are we looking to mitigate those risks? And what is our next sort of uh, 12 to 18 month plan and how are we thinking forward in terms of building a compliance program and a financial crime program within that that really ensures that we are putting in proportionate and pragmatic controls that allow the business to grow and scale and allows it to continue to innovate and be competitive but also mitigates our risk exposure and having that dialogue with the, with the regulators on an ongoing basis, really talking to them about, you know, we've self-identified these issues and here's what we've done about it. I think, you know, companies often feel worried about going to regulators and saying, well, we've identified an issue. When in actual fact, my experience has been that re regulators um, feel, quite com feel quite comfortable with an entity that is self-identifying issues because they the, the view is that that, that organisation has the expertise to be able to um, identify material risk exposure before um, a regulator or an independent audit and they've got a plan around how they're going to address that. So yeah, it's really it's really about sort of having that ongoing dialogue and really sort of making sure that you can interpret the regulations as they apply to your business model. 
Got it. Got it. It's almost like being proactive and preempting the regulation um, in cases where there it's not there. Absolutely. And I also think there's an opportunity here um, to really sort of, as part of this dialogue, have the regulator start thinking about or forward thinking and planning around regulatory future regulatory prioritization you know what are, what are some of the practical constraints around applying this regulation in in singapore we hear the regulators talk a lot about wanting to make this the fintech hub for asia well in order for that to be the case you really need to have a regulatory framework that strikes that balance between innovation and balancing risk and the way in which you do that i think is is to have this this ongoing discussion which says well look these are some of the challenges we have in terms of interpreting these regulations and applying them this is how it's um you know this is how this is how this application is commercially challenging us but this is this is where we think the risk is and this is how we're looking to 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 mitigate that risk so how can we how can we think about future um you know regulatory updates in this space to ensure that you know um it allows us like i said to continue to develop and innovate but at the same time that that we've got this control framework in place got it got it um one other area i kind of want us to think about is i mean you you worked in banks and now you're working with fintechs are there different risks financial crime risks um for for banks versus fintechs and how do you think about them differently from a compliance perspective? Yeah, so um, I think with with fintechs, the the sort of the, the main risk comes from the fact that everything's done remotely. So onboarding is remote. You have um, you know the speed at which customers want to be onboarded and start using your products um, is 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 another risk. So um, you know. That speed and access and um, ability to sort of start using the product and service is definitely um, a key difference. Um, I think in banks, obviously depending on the area, but the, you know those, those um, that onboarding process is is, is longer. It's uh, typically done in in person, and then you have sort of an in person meeting, sort of annually, depending on the risk profile of the customer. So um, that that's the key difference. I would say that. In, you know, fintechs are using technology in a way that the banks don't and, and may not be able to. So, you know, the fact that onboarding is done remotely and digitally means that technology is now being used um, in ways that it, it never has been before. So there are things like liveliness checks, there's biometrics checks, um, all these sorts of um, uh, additional um, checks that are now done to ensure that remote and non-face-to-face -face onboarding is as robust as in-person onboarding. Um, you know, onboarding is sort of one aspect. Um, collecting data in terms of how your customers are using your products and your platform in order to build a more holistic view of your client profile so that you can then identify where there are um, deviations from their more, um, from their expected activity. Um, is, is something that I see um, fintechs do very well. They're able to partner with, with vendors that have deep expertise um, in this area and have, have built products and tools that can be plugged in and, and you know, the, the tech companies can leverage that sort of, um, that functionality. Banks tend to be a little more hampered by the fact that they have such disparate um, systems and controls that are largely a result of the fact that they have just sort of um, pieced together 
um, these these uh, the technology infrastructure over decades, it means sort of having these these new and robust reg tech tools that can that can you know really streamline some of these controls is challenging. Um, that being said, you know tech companies face face the challenge that they are trying to operate in a space that doesn't always neatly fall within regulatory requirements, right? So regulations and regulators are very familiar with banks and a lot of the regulations are are crafted with banks and banks products and services and processes in mind. Whereas um, fintech companies are always looking at sort of new and innovative ways of doing things that are quicker and more frictionless. And as such, there, it, it is often like trying to put a square peg into a round hole and trying to sort of really think about, well, how can we apply that regulation in, in this space, which is why I sort of always double down on the point that it isn't just about meeting regulatory requirements. It's really thinking about what is the essence of the risk and how can we think about that when we think about our product and service? Got it. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good point for all of the uh, banks and fintech folks on this call, I think, yeah, trying to navigate the compliance space can be challenging, especially when, you know, there aren't rules that specifically explicitly apply to what you're doing. So, um, yeah, yeah. And something else that I'm, um, you know, I've worked with a range of fintechs from sort of startup and currently I'm working with sort of an early a pre MVP, um, tech company. And, you know, it's, it's very, I become, I, I think the thing that I realized um, quite quickly when I started working with tech companies is, you know, how hyper-focused they are on the customer experience. And therefore, you know, every every control you put in place is always thought of with that in, in mind. So what does this mean from a cost, customer, and risk perspective? Whereas when I worked in banking, you you, you feel very removed from the customer in that way. And so you, you're you're very much sort of focused on, well, what what is, you know, the the, the organization's risk appetite and what is the, the regulatory requirements, which was, you know, the two kind of things that, that you thought about. Whereas I really enjoy this 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 kind of constant shifting and balancing of, you know, how how commercial is our product? What do our what will our customers feel? What will this mean from a you know a friction perspective? And how are we sort of thinking about how we can build those controls in in order to balance and balance all that? Yeah, Pat, I want to go back, uh, maybe thinking a little bit more about financial crime uh, and actually uh, diving in a little bit deeper on cryptocurrency. Uh, I think you know lots of folks talk about tons of opportunities with crypto. Um, but also lots of risks in relation to financial crime. So my question for you as someone who's not, you know, doesn't have a ton of experience in the space is, is this just noise um, or do banks and fintechs really need to be taking the crypto financial crime threat seriously? Um, I would, so my view is yes, the, the, that, they, that it should be taken seriously. And I, I think more so now than ever. And the reason for that is I see a material shift happening now from um, cryptocurrency being this sort of um, um, sort of uh, complicated space that only a small handful of tech people understand, and you know, um, then into sort of a place where purely institutional investors would operate in order to make money, to now moving mainstream, to now having. Um, more and more people um, use it as part of their day-to-day -day life. So recently we had things like PayPal announced that you could actually use it on um, 
their platform, we're seeing more and more companies um, emerge that are allowing you to uh, transfer your cryptocurrency onto a card, which you can then use um, to, to, to go buy, you know, coffee, etc. And, you know, that that shift into mainstream adoption is where I think um, we're going to start see we're going to start seeing more and more sort of focus as we are from a regulatory perspective around, you know, this is now becoming something that is we're going to see um, more use cases, more new and emerging typologies. Um, the, 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 the very nature of um, digital currency in terms of um, the speed at which you can um, move, uh, convert fiat to, to crypto, uh, the speed at which it can move across borders means that it's, 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 it's a real high risk. Um, and as such, really thinking through um, what controls can be put in place um, is, is key. Um, and really thinking about sort of what do these typologies look like um, and how can we ensure that, you know, we've got adequate screening in place, that we're doing the right type of monitoring on the wallets. Um, I think part of the challenge is that because it's such a new, new space, we're seeing regulators learn as the space evolves, right? So the, the, the regulations have not kept up with the pace of innovation in that space. And as such, it's, um, it's very much, you know, uh, a case of um, working closely with the regulators, really, you know, really having these international bodies such as FATF um, think through um, what do individual markets need to be thinking about when when um, permitting crypto um, cryptocurrency within those specific markets. What we're seeing is also, um, you know, different countries taking different approaches. There are certain markets in Asia where, um, you know, you're you would probably classify as pro cryptocurrency and other markets where they're, you know, still incredibly weary. Um, and as such, we're not seeing a uniform and consistent risk appetite globally around this either. So I think I think it presents a lot of challenges, but um, yeah, just a super exciting space. And I think one that we're going to see evolve quite rapidly over the next three to five years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I do want to talk a little bit about what's happening now with COVID and looking forward. The most of us have been under lockdown for months. Um, things have been slowing down for many businesses. But it sounds like for financial criminals, that's not exactly the case. So I guess in your in your view, like what has COVID done to and for financial criminals? Um, and can you maybe give some examples of some of the maybe new types of threats you're seeing today versus what you saw before? Yeah, so I think what we're seeing is a lot of as as more and more people are online, we're seeing more um, we're seeing hacks. Um, so a lot of cybersecurity threats. So recently, um, KuCoin in Singapore um, announced sort of a hack of its exchange and a number of and a, a volume of um, its cryptocurrency was was stolen. Um, we're seeing a lot more fraud. We're seeing a lot of sort of phishing emails, um, those types of scams where people are encouraged to go onto websites, share their details um, regularly. Um, we're seeing things like people being asked to disclose their bank details, etc. So we're seeing a lot of online fraud. Um, and yeah, you're right. So COVID hasn't in any which way slowed down um, the, you know, the activity of criminals. In fact, I think it's just allowed, given them sort of more use cases now to sort of leverage during this time. 
Yeah, yeah. And I guess, are you seeing new new use cases or is it just more of like pre-COVID use cases? Yeah, I think it's more pre-COVID cases. So, and then just heightened levels of fraud during this time. Um, so, yeah. Got it. And so then as a compliance, you know, someone working in compliance, like what does that mean for, for the compliance officers listening? Um, what I assume their job is getting harder, but um, what, what do they need to be on the lookout for right now? Yeah, so I think, I think I wouldn't really sort of think about it in isol in in sort of this in in isolation of where we are at the moment. I think really ensuring that you have a a robust monitoring program in place. And so for those that aren't too familiar with sort of what monitoring entails, it really it really involves looking at your client activity on your platform. So looking at what your customers are doing, um, looking at you know spikes in behavior certain activity at certain times that you wouldn't expect. Um, clients that are transacting in volumes and values in geographies that you wouldn't normally expect. And really thinking about, does this look normal? Does this look right? Um, having rules in places is one thing, but having sort of an iterative process, which means that you're constantly looking and reevaluating and really thinking about, you know, what are these new and emerging threats and how are they manifesting themselves? on our platform is vital not only now but as we as we continue to see more of a shift towards um, people using these digital products and services having that sort of i think people see um uh, compliance or ky um financial crime is more just sort of onboarding. Well, we've got their passport and we know who they are and that's our job done. Well, actually I see onboarding as being the smallest part of the overall financial crime program. You know, it gives you an initial view of who your customer is, but actually what is more telling is the ongoing profile that you build of your customer that is really telling of sort of who they are and what their risk profile is. Got it, I understand. I guess what sort of skills do, do compliance officers need to be building to actually, you know, identify some of these threats um, and keep up? these like new challenges yeah i um well i would say join the ffe that we that we manage a shameless plug there but i'll take it anyway <laughs> because i think i think what is what what is what is really important especially in the tech space is i think the community sharing sharing sort of what they've seen on their platform so that other organizations that are working in say the remittance space or the crypto space etc can can really take that information and say have we seen this um have we got a control in place actually that means that whilst we're not seeing it now maybe we will see it because you know if, if x company is seeing it and they're operating in a similar space we should have a control in place um and so yes of course now's a time where everyone can sort of do a virtual training course etc but i think i think the main the main way in which the com the community can you know really really work together is through sharing of this information i mean ultimately it can't be just one organization that that manages to have all the controls and all the knowledge um that will enable us to actually you know um put it you know try and mitigate some of these risks it'll really be about the community talking and sharing some of their learnings got it yeah um i think that's and, and it sounds like it's not just within like the financial crime community it sounds like it's across fintech verticals being able to talk to each other um and, and actually see like where are there similar threats you're seeing across verticals absolutely and and you know i won't uh, 
I won't sort of discredit this this idea of public-private partnership. I think regulators also um, being open and willing to to meet with um, representation representatives of the fintech community is is important. Um, I would say we are fortunate here in Singapore that Mass is is one of the few regulators I think that has been that has a really great um, dialogue with the tech community. They're always open to um, discussion and learning. I would say that you know the the regulatory approach is quite stringent here. It is quite risk averse, but um, there is real appetite for dialogue and learning. And I absolutely think that those of us that work in this space should leverage that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to go back to something you said a little earlier um, around around reg tech, actually. Uh, and so, wanting to to understand what is the role of AI and machine learning and other sorts of these like you know newer technologies in uh, in compliance, identifying financial criminals. Um, what is the role of that? Do you think it's just a bunch of, you know, reg tech is like, you know, a sexy word that we like to throw around, is it real? Like, do you think it's as impactful as, uh, you know, creating like compliance community that you just, that you just mentioned? Yeah, so, um particularly sort of here in Singapore, the, the, you know, and, and in, in Hong Kong and other, um, other uh, countries within the within the region, uh, we're hearing regulators really um, endorse the use of technology in this space, in the compliance space. So really using data um, in in an informed way to make risk based decisions. And I think that's right. And I think where fintech companies definitely have the edge over banks is their quality and use of data is very good because they're newer. They have you know. Um, they have typically good quality data that they can then plug into a system that can then, um, you know, hopefully give them meaningful information out. I would say, um, I, you know, I'm trying to think of a diplomatic way to put this, but ultimately, whilst I think there is absolutely a place for reg tech, and I see it, I see, I work with, um, and I've seen incredible solutions offered. Ultimately, if you don't have compliance expertise in-house that can take that solution, take the rules or the service that they provide and apply it to your business, it's a bit like rubbish in, rubbish out. You put you put data in to in the wrong rules, and you're going to get you know the wrong information out. It's also important to know that regulators globally, whilst they whilst they seem to be um, endorsing the use of um, reg tech more and more, they are also at pains to to be clear that the onus of the risk um, and risk mitigation still sits with the company themselves. So sometimes what I see happen is companies um, will go with a, a vendor um, and will say, okay, well, that control sits with them. That's great. You know, now we can carry on with our business. Well, that, that's not actually how it works. You need to have a very granular understanding of what that what that vendor is doing for you how are they doing it um, I would also um, encourage ongoing evaluation of how their systems and controls are working so that you can then go and have that detailed dialogue with the regulators you can say how and why you've selected that vendor why you've chosen to partner with them why they have the expertise to mitigate the risks in your business so um, I definitely think there is a space um, for, for reg techs, um, I would say the role of the compliance officer now should be overseeing um, the, the, um, the control program if it's been outsourced. So, you know, I think 
slowly but surely we're going to see a shift away, particularly in banks, from these large teams that go and do a lot of manual lifting. Um, and a lot of that manual lifting, rightly so, now being done by these um, tech solutions. But what you are going to need are experts that can really test how robust is that solution. Um, you know, what to, to our earlier point, what are the new and emerging risks that we're seeing that actually now we need to translate into a rule and we need to speak to our vendor or we need to develop um, a rule in-house so that we're, you know, um, addressing that. And I think that's right. I think for people that want to work in compliance, that's a more interesting space to work in by far. You know, I don't think anyone enjoys just just sitting there and, and get, you know, checking passports and, and, and utility bills, right? What's really interesting is is thinking about, you know, what, what are these risks and, and, you know, have we got the right controls in place? Got it. Got it. So I guess the we definitely it's not that the compliance industry or compliance officers are going anywhere. It's that they're uh, to me, it sounds like they're going to be overseeing the process, creating more of a strategy around, uh, you know, fighting financial crime. And then the machines might actually be the ones like sorting through the through the data. Yeah, well, that's 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 the hey, that's, uh, you know, and then like, like I said, I think um, I think that that makes for a more interesting um, role. And so I, you know, when, when people talk about, and, and I've had this question quite a few times about, you know, do you feel like the roles of compliance officers will exist, you know, in the future or, you know, my view is I think the roles will exist. I think they'll be far more interesting. Um, I don't know that there'll be as many as there are now. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing either. But um, yeah, I think it's a really exciting space to work in. Absolutely. Well, we're almost out of time, Kyle. I'm I'm going to end on my favorite question, um, which is, you know, what are you most excited about in in compliance and what scares you? Um, what am I most excited about? Um, I'm most excited about continuing to work with um, new fintechs. I find it very exciting working with founders of early stage startups. Um, I like the hustle and um, I guess the, the 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 pace of working with um, early stage startups. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited also to see how the regulatory framework in Singapore in particular evolves. So we had the Payment Services Act come into force earlier this year. It was it's a new act, um, and with any sort of new um, regulation, you have. Um, a number of challenges around implementation, especially one that has tried to capture payment services at this scale. Um, and I'm interested to see how, um, if and how the regulations um, change as a result of consultation, um, how many um, applicants receive their license, particularly crypto exchanges, um, digital banks, who, you know, who emerges as winners in that space? What products and services are they going to offer? What are their differentiators? So I think next year will be a really exciting year, particularly here in Singapore. Um, what scares me? Um, you know, I think for me, um, if I'm, I think if, if we're not able to, um, travel I think the 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 non-face-to-face -face nature if I'm being honest in terms of the way I work the way I engage with clients not necessarily scares me but um it's something that 
I'm not particularly looking forward to. I really enjoy one of the parts of my job that I really enjoy. And I enjoyed it when I was at Standard Chartered is really going and meeting with my clients on site in country. So prior to lockdown, I was traveling across the region. I really enjoy the immersive experience of being somewhere, really understanding on the ground how things work, how are things done. And I think it gives me a real, um, a real sense of, you know, some of the challenges and, you know, having some of that dialogue in person, you, you just don't, you don't build that rapport or that relationship remotely, I don't think. And so, yeah, I, I hope that, you know, we, we find a way to, to, to make that shift at some point, it does feel like quite some time before that will happen. But yeah, I, I definitely hope that, that we can move to that at, at some point. Yes, absolutely. I'm also I also have the travel bug and I'm itching to get out of Singapore. So um, fingers crossed for that. Um, but Pyle, that is uh, all the time we have for today. Um, so big thank you to you uh, for being here with us. Thank you to our audience. Um, and again, thank you to Broadcast Apex for sponsoring us. Um, thanks for joining the Green Room and we will talk to you again next time. Um, see you soon. Thank you so much. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello, my name is Todd Schweitzer. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Brancas. Brancas is a Southeast Asia-based open finance technology company. And we do several things. We work with banks and other financial institutions with a set of software solutions to help them launch open APIs and API products um, in a matter of weeks. And we also provide uh, simplified APIs that enable any FinTech or e-commerce or online business to instantly connect to financial services across Southeast Asia through a simple API. We operate in Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore, and soon Bangladesh. And I'm very excited to participate in the Green Room and forward to supporting the Green Room podcast and also the broader Apex Oxygen initiatives. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Green Room with Amrita Veer. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And make sure to hit subscribe to get the latest updates. You can also visit amritavir.com to get more information, join our mailing list, and just reach out to us. You can also write to us at greenroomfintech at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Catch you later.